we start a brand new series uh, last week in the book of 1 Timothy. And 1 Timothy is a letter that the Apostle Paul uh, writes to his disciple, um, young Timothy, um, as a form of teaching, but as a form also of encouraging Timothy on this idea of how to run church. Uh, last week, we saw that Paul emphasized that the foundation of the church was the truth. You can't have church without truth. And truth being the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, before we get into chapter 2 today, I'll give you a little bit of a disclaimer. I've been preaching for, I calculated this, 17 years now. And I think tonight's passage may have been one of the most difficult passages um, to prepare and also to preach on. And, 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 you know, I already preached it this morning in Bird. Um, so this is the second run, which is good. Um, it's a really difficult passage. And I just flag this with you because I don't want you to get there and go, wow, this is really difficult. And just think to yourself, is it just me thinking that this is really difficult? No, I'm just telling you, it's really difficult for everyone, including myself. Okay? But what we're going to do is we're going to humbly approach the passage like we do every week. And we're going to ask God to speak to us. Because that's what we need. You need God's opinion and not mine. So in chapter 2, Paul is going to teach about public worship. How we should conduct ourselves in public worship. Meaning when we get together as a gathering... How should we worship? And so this is how he begins chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness." Paul tells Timothy, when you gather for public worship, like we are currently at, we should pray for all people. We should pray for all people. Specifically, Paul singles out kings and all those in authority so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Why does Paul single out the leaders of the nations and those in authority? Because they are the ones with power and influence. But why should we pray for them? Verse 3, because this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We pray for all people, especially those in authority, because firstly, it pleases God. It's what pleases God. But secondly, we pray because God wants them to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We pray for all these people because that is God's desire. That's what God wants. That's what God is pleased with. So that mankind would be saved from their sin. This is consistent with why Jesus was sent to earth. To come and seek and save the lost, which includes everyone. And not just everyone in this room. Not just everyone who's tuning into our live stream but 
everyone. This is God's divine desire and it's something that is important for us to learn today. That when we gather, the hearing of God's word and the fellowship of God's people should never be separated from the desire of God's own heart, which is that all men would be saved. That's what God wants. So let's not forget this. See, when we forget to pray for people outside of our church, what we are doing is we are forgetting that God wants us to exist outside these walls, that the mission and the purpose of our lives is not just within these walls. It's not for us to come, have a great time together, hold hands, sing Kumbaya, and just feel good about ourselves. But no, it's to get together and pray for the lost and reach the lost. And when we don't pray for the people, then we make it about ourselves. We need to have an outward focus. And Paul will go on in verse 5 and 6 to explain to us how humanity was saved. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to uh, at the proper time. All people can be saved by the work of the mediator, Jesus Christ, God's son that bridged the gap between God and man. And he did this by dying on the cross, paying the ransom, paying the penalty for our sins. God's desire for salvation was so strong that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die instead of us. Friends, we must never lose sight of God's heart. We must never lose sight of God's desire for his people or else we risk, we risk missing the point of what we are meant to do. And this is why Paul was called to teach and preach so that people would be saved. I sat in baptism class today. We're baptizing three of our our brothers and sisters, and they each shared with me the story of how they were saved. I promise you, there's not a class better than baptism class listening to those testimonies of how God is working in their lives. And it reminds me, it reminds me, this is why we exist as a church, to help people find God and their identity and purpose be changed. And I wonder how many of us, when we come to church, are we concerned with the lost? I wonder how many of us, when we come, is it about me? Or is it about God and what God wants? Are we more inclined to come and and enjoy fellowship and worship about me? Like, Is it about what I can take or is it about what I can give for the sake of the kingdom? Friends, and friends, God says when we gather, we should pray. Pray for our friends and our family. Pray for our, our classmates and our colleagues so that they would be saved. And I want to encourage you, if you are not praying for someone else outside of you, you should begin. Actually, it was a bit of a reminder. As a church, we probably need to do this more. We need to pray for our non-believing friends and family. Not that they would come to church, but that they would come to know God. So we need to do that more and more. Verse 8, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, 
with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Paul then tells the men, men, lift up holy hands and pray, but do that without anger or disputing. And then he tells the women to dress appropriately as women who profess to worship God. Now, as I said, right, this passage is a little bit curly and we're starting to get there, okay? But remember, I didn't write it, okay? It's God. So you got a problem, take it up with God, okay? Paul addresses the topic of attire for public worship because this attire was becoming a distraction in worship. See, for some women in that time, they were spending more time working out what to wear at church rather than what to, uh, how to give God the best worship. And they were distracted from their own worship They were concerned about how they looked and how they presented themselves on the outside rather than what was inside of their heart. And so it was distracting to them. But not just for them, but for other women and men who would see these women come in all dressed up and it would be distracting for them. Other women would be like, yo, did you see what she wore today? You know? And other men would be like, ooh, is there, any, is there any more to that pair of pants? <laughs> you know? See, see the problem is, we, we laugh about this now, right? And, and I joke, right? I, I kid you not. I've had, you know, 15 years in formal ministry. I've had people come to church, and it's like, wow, your mum lets you come to church in your undies? Like, I'm not going to mention names, but there are some people that are still here with us that used to wear their undies to church, it would be so distracting, right? The problem is this. God, to God, worship is so important. Worship is so important that He does not want us to be distracted. He wants us to be focused on Him. And worship is so important to God. Paul says, do not focus on the things that would distract you or others from this central act of corporate worship. Be loving to each other. Don't distract each other. So Paul is speaking upon the context of public worship, and we get to the end of the passage, and it's four verses, five verses. One of the most disputed passages in all of the Scriptures. And I'm going to read it, and we'll see how we go. Verse 11 to 15, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and and holiness with propriety. And say amen, but don't, I don't know where we're going to go with this. 
Let's go slow. Okay? Don't throw anything. Let's just go slow. Okay? Verse 11. Okay? A woman should learn in quietness and submission. Okay? The command given in this verse, the focus is not the word quietness and submission, but the focus of this verse is the word learn. Women should learn. That's the command, right? What's the context, right? Women, unlike in our day, were not valued in society. So they were usually not educated nor have any kind of social standing. And you know what? If you know a little bit about history, you're not going to disagree with this, right? 50, 60 years, right? Even if you just go 50, 60 years ago, most cultures, in most cultures, women did not have equal rights, right? And sadly, even now, even now in 2021, there are many parts of the world where women are still considered second-class citizens. So when Paul says that women should learn, it was said not, uh, it was said because not many women were educated. But they were saying things and they were teaching things that came out of an unlearned heart. And the attitude that they should learn with, Paul says, should be in quietness and full submission. Now, firstly, the word quietness. All scholars, right, and I read a lot of them, would agree that quietness does not mean complete silence, but actually means the word peacefulness. There is more, this is more of a translational issue. And, and it's pretty much saying to learn with the attitude of peacefulness, to not dispute, uh, but to humbly listen. Secondly, the word submission is a military term meaning to come up under rank. Right? So when Paul calls women to learn with the attitude of submission, what he's calling them to do is to recognize the rank of the teacher, of the one that is teaching them. Now, it does become a little bit tricky here because some scholars would say that it's to be submissive to the men who are teaching them. And some scholars would say that it's to be submissive to God who is the overarching teacher. Hmm. Let's move on. Verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Everyone's eyes are just forward right now, trying not to see anybody, right? Once again, the word quiet could be better translated as peacefulness, to strive for peace. And many commentators believe that the word teach could actually be better translated to the phrase to be a teacher. So what it's actually saying is Paul is forbidding women from these roles to be a teacher or one who has authority over man. That's what Paul's saying. I didn't write this, that's Paul. Okay, we'll come back to this. Okay? Verse 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Paul's reasons for not allowing women to be a teacher and have authority over males is in worship, in public worship, is explained with these two reasons. Number one, God created man first, and woman was created for the sake of man. That's created order. 
okay? Secondly, it was Eve who sinned first. And I know as much as that sounds really bad, right? Because it feels like we're pointing fingers at each other, right? It's not the fact that, that Eve sinned first. It's the point that where it went wrong was that Eve went against the created order. Eve went above and beyond the headship of man and made decisions that were above her. Now, what was man doing? He was, he was there. It's not that man is sinless. But it was woman that mixed up that creative order, that created order. And that's why Paul's saying, this is why women should not be a teacher or assert authority over man. And then we have verse 15. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. I read that verse, and the first thought that came to my heart was, I am so glad my wife is going to be saved. <laughs> saved over and over again, right? The interesting thing about this verse is this. Commentators say, right, scholars, we're talking about thousands of years of academics, they say out of the whole New Testament, that verse is the hardest verse to understand. Some say, right, that women will be saved through childbearing, that it's because Jesus was brought into the world as a child. Through childbearing, that's how women are saved, just like all men are saved. Some say that it's woman's gift to humanity, the honor of childbirth, and that's how they're saved. Now, I'm going to shoot super straight with you on this one. I don't know. And I know some people are like, well, you should know. And I know I should know. I've studied it. I've read nearly every commentary on it, and everyone's telling me a whole bunch of different things, but no one can tell me anything definite. So therefore... I land to my conclusion on that verse, chapter 2, verse 15. I don't know. And we're going to move on. And if you feel salty about that, that's why you have life groups. Okay? Life group leaders, good luck. Okay? Take a breath. There's a lot of stuff in there. There's a lot of stuff in there that can be offensive, Right? There's a lot of stuff in there that's very countercultural. Now, this passage isn't the most popular passage in Scripture. But the fact that it's Scripture means that we have to attend to it. There's a few things in this passage that the majority of scholars agree. So I want to start there. Let's start with what we all agree upon. Number one, male and female are equal in value. Agreed. Man was created first, and then woman was created. Agreed. Right? Women can teach. It's not that women can't teach. It's not a question of gifting, but it's a question of who can they teach. That's where the distinction comes. But they can teach. See, no one disagrees with these statements. But the big question about this passage and why this passage is so difficult is this. How do we take this passage and understand it and apply it in our day in 2021? 
Do we take this passage literally? Meaning, is this a universal principle that we need to live out today? Or do we accept that it was a temporary principle that was given as a, to a specific culture and context, meaning that it does not apply to us literally today? That's the question. The question is whether these restrictions were based on the specific situation in Ephesus, the culture in the Greco-Roman Jewish world, or is it a principle rooted in the way that God wants men and women to interact with one another? That's the question. And it's a really difficult question, right? Now, there are two major opposing views uh, when we start talking about male and female leadership. And I'm going to just uh, introduce these to you, um, tip of the iceberg kind of stuff, and then show you how when you uh, prescribe to one of these views, how that looks out in a church uh, setting. The first key word is this word complementarianism. Complementarianism holds that God has created men and women equal in their essential dignity and human personhood but different and complementary in function with male headship in the home and in the church. According to this view, people, people would take this passage literally and they would say that this is a universal principle that wasn't just about a certain situation, but this is exactly what God wants that the restrictions that we're given are permanent, authoritative, and for the church in all times and places and circumstances. So practically speaking, if a church was to be prescribed to this, then there would be no female pastors, no female leaders, and senior leadership would be reserved for males alone. Not to say that females were less valuable, but the role that they would have in the church would be defined by the created order, meaning that they would teach, but only teach other females or younger males, depending on how strict the church was. So that's complementarianism. Okay. Now, the other side of the coin is, is, is called egalitarianism, which would assert that there is no gender-based difference. No gender-based role distinction or limitations placed on women in the home, church, or society. There is no difference between male and female, what they can and can't do. And according to this position, males and females could be pastors, teachers, leaders, and even senior leaders of a church. For those that hold this position, when they read this passage in Timothy, they would say that this, the restrictions were given to Timothy because he was in Ephesus, and it is not a universal principle, but it is a situational, specific, temporary restriction only for those in Ephesus. But they are not relevant to our society, where our values and beliefs are very much different. Okay? Now, there's problems with both. I'll start with complementarianism. When we read Scripture, right, one of the fundamental things when we read Scripture is that we are called to read it in its context, understand the first author and audience, and then work out how this applies in our lives. 
So for example, when we go to topics like the topic of slavery, right? Now, we're not, when we read Scripture, we have to understand that at a time and in that context, slavery was just a part of the norm. But how would we then read that in today's context, especially in our culture? And what do we do about the female leaders that exist in the Bible? If men were meant to be the only leaders, how do we have multiple stories about women leading, teaching, and prophesying in the Bible? Right? So we we get this gap. But on the other side of the coin, for those that um, prescribe with egalitarianism, the danger of saying that this principle was a situation-specific principle is this. How do we get to pick and choose? How do we get to pick and choose what is situational and what is not? What is culturally uh, relevant and what is not? Uh, The danger with this argument is that uh, it's like we can pick and choose what we want to believe. We, we can pick and choose what we want to obey out of Scripture. And the problem with that one is, number one, who then has the authority to decide what is cultural and context? Right? And secondly, where is the limitation for that? Because actually, if you keep going down that road, you can actually get to a place where you can say the whole Bible is actually irrelevant to us because it was only relevant to its current context and culture when it was written. And that's really dangerous. Now, I present both of these to you because I want to show you that within these two positions, they are not perfect. That there are gaps within each of these positions. Now, the great thing is each individual, yourselves, are allowed the freedom to interpret this text in the way that you want, right? But I thought it would be helpful for us um, not to continue to give you both sides, but actually to give you, uh, firstly, my opinion that's portrayed in our church's biblical leadership statements. We have seven statements in our church that we came down to when we had to deal with these issues about church governments, about leadership. And and let me say, let me give the preamp. Within complementarianism and egalitarianism, there is this big gray in the middle. And I actually believe that the majority of our church, we exist in this big gray in the middle. And I don't think we actually fit either of these positions. And so I'm going to share with you the seven statements of leadership. And it's going to show you that it doesn't fit perfectly, right? And even within our church, even in our members, there are people that sit on either side of the fence of this. And that's okay. Okay? So I'm going to share with you seven, our seven statements about biblical leadership to give you an insight on where we as a church sit, right? And they also definitely reflect my personal views in this as well. Number one, this is an open-handed issue. Meaning, That this is not a closed-hand issue, meaning that this is not a non-negotiable issue. It's not an issue that addresses the primary matters of gospel and salvation. Where you sit 
on biblical leadership will not make you a Christian or disqualify you from being a Christian. We recognize that other faithful Christians and churches may have different views of leadership to us, and we respect that. And we're not going to allow that to get in the way of the way we partner and uh, and, and aim for unity for the sake of the kingdom. It's an open-handed issue, which is good. Because it means that if you don't agree with me, or if you don't agree with the church, it doesn't mean you have to leave. It means that we are okay to disagree in this issue, because it is not a life and death situation. Now, some people would say that it is a life and death situation. It is a closed-hand issue, and that's the way it is. And I'm going to say no, right? And I'm going to say that I know even in our church, some of you might feel like that, and I'm going to be like, no. I just don't see it like that. I don't think it's a primary issue of gospel and salvation. Okay? So that's number one statement. Number two. God created male and female equally in his image. God equally values men and women as they were both created in his image. Number three, God uses males and females through different roles and responsibilities. There is a distinction of roles and function associated with each gender, especially as it pertains to home and church, right? What this is saying is God created men for certain things and God created women for certain things and they're different. But different doesn't mean better. Different doesn't mean worse. Different doesn't mean more important or less important. Different just means different. Okay? Number four, authority comes from God. Authority to lead and teach comes from God and not the position nor title of the person. Both men and women are to submit under the ultimate authority of God. Number five, God has reserved the position of headship in family and in the church for males. The Bible clearly tells us that males are created to be the head of the household. And in the same way, we believe that the Bible teaches that the senior leadership of the church, i.e. the senior pastor and the elders, are reserved for males. Now, I want to pause there. That's probably the most controversial out of the seven. I want to pause there. We believe that this is what God originally intended when he created family and the church. And I believe, we believe, that's what Scripture says. Right? God created Adam to be the head of the house. Now, did Adam do a good job? And the answer is no. Adam messed it up. And when sin entered, the family, the original family that God intended was ruined. It was broken. Because I get a lot of questions, right? Well, what if you get a divorce? What if the dad dies and, you know, mom is a single parent? then how, how does that work with headship? Now, I understand that. I fully comprehend that. I hear that. And I'm saying that's acceptable because we're in a broken world. But just because it's broken doesn't mean we should take away from what was the original intent and original 
our purpose of the way God created it. And the way God created it was he created men to be the head of the household. Have men done it well? No. They haven't. Have they stuffed it up? Yes. It's broken. Families are broken. Marriages are broken. Church is broken. But just because it's broken doesn't mean we just throw the whole system out. Right? Just because it doesn't seem to be working in the world doesn't mean that we just ignore what God said and go, God, you know what? We're just going to make this work ourselves. No. God had an original intent and purpose, and we do our best to honor that. And we do that in our, in our, in our families, and we do that in our church. Number six, God created both males and females to lead. Both male and females have been chosen to hold positions of leadership. These men and women are to use and exercise their gifts of leadership to continue to influence those around them for the sake of God's will. This is to be exercised underneath the authority of the church. Do we have amazing women that lead? Yes, are they gifted in leading and teaching? Yes. So should they lead? Yes. Of course they should. We believe that because that's the way God has gifted them. But we ask in the same way as the men who lead, that they would lead underneath the authority of the church. Number seven, women can teach. We believe God has equipped some women to teach. Once again, we believe that women should exercise this gift underneath the authority of the church. Now, they're the seven biblical leadership statements that we came up with when we were coming uh, to work out, I guess, leadership structure in our church. What you believe, what we believe as is biblical um, statements is the way that we're going to execute leadership in our church. And here's the thing. We believe that we don't fit the complementarian theology. We, we, we don't fit the egalitarian theology. And we're in this middle miss, you know, mix mash of it all. And I'm the first to admit, if we're wrong, we're wrong. I'm not going to hold this. Like, if I go to heaven, right, and God says, Steve, you got it wrong. I'm not going to be like, oh, man, I lived and died for that. No, I, I didn't right? I'm the first to admit that there are other churches that are smarter and that are uh, just, you know, better well-versed in Scripture that have different positions to me, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I'm okay even in our church when people disagree with those seven statements, right? I'm okay because why? Number one, this is an open-handed issue. I'm not going to live and die fighting on this issue because it's not an issue of first importance. Do I know exactly everything that is the truth on this matter? I don't. Will I on this side of eternity? Probably not. So we just take the best that we have. We take where we land and we try to you know, back it up with what we believe is Scripture. That's where we land as a church. Now, as I said, you don't, you don't agree with it? You don't agree with some of those statements? That's fine. We can still be friends. We can still go to the same church. We can still love each other. 
but it's just where we have landed. And because as a church, this is where we have landed, we have a male senior pastor. We have an all-male board. We have a female pastor, a very, very talented female pastor that will answer all your questions to do with today's sermon. May at the chapelsydney.org.au. We have many amazing female leaders that are leading life groups and leading ministries. And most importantly, we have a church that wants to do everything it can to love God, love others, and reach the lost. That's what we have at our church because of what we believe. Friends, sometimes we can let secondary issues fog up our view of God and of what God wants for us. And I'm saying to you right now, this is a secondary issue. The form of your church, of how church is run, is a secondary issue. But the beauty is this, and this is where I want to close today. In the same chapter, as we have read all these very difficult, very countercultural verses that have created so much discussion and division within the church, we go back to verse 3 that brings us back to what I think, not what I think, which is a primary concern. And it reads this, this is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. That's the beauty of the gospel. You know what's funny? I think that if we spent less time discussing and being divided about secondary issues like male and female leadership, and we spent more time praying for the lost, I think that would honor God so much more. And so I'm not saying don't have an opinion. And I'm not saying it's not important. It is important. But I'm saying in context and in perspective from God's own heart, I think God cares less about the structure of our church leadership than the lost sheep that he wants us to reach and to save. So in your life groups this week, Feel free to talk about all the fun stuff at the end of you know, 1 Timothy 2, right? But can I ask you, the amount of time you discuss the end part of 1 Timothy 2, could you invest the same amount of time in praying for the lost? Because I think that's what God desires. Because that is a matter of first importance. Let's pray.